we're doing for this week and for the next, really, three weeks is we're going to start a, a new mini-series, and it's a series called Doxology. Doxology. Anyone know what doxology means? Yeah, thanks or praise. The word dox is a word that means glory. Um, and so doxology is, is to give glory to something, to praise something. Um, it's a series about worship, and specifically musical worship. And, and so what we actually wanted to do tonight is we wanted to start with the message about worship and then actually do some worship. Um, so just for the next couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to take that order. We're just going to begin with the message um, and then actually conclude our time with worship, then do announcements, then do small groups. Uh, sound good? Hopefully I'm not catching anyone out, uh, too much out of surprise here. Uh, just let me give you a couple reasons why, why this series. Um, I'm going to give you two, and, and the first one is this. Um, so these days, when people ask me um, what, what's going on in Thrive, how's Thrive doing, um, one of the things I tell them is, is my favorite part of Thrive over the last several months. Uh, my answer to that question is the singing, the singing. Um, I have really been just so filled and delighted when I've gotten to hear you all sing in worship. Um, I think the only word that I can describe it is that there's a, there's a quality to it that I can um, describe as heartfeltness. There's just been a real heartfeltness to, to worship. Um, and, and I just thought, like, why, why not cultivate that a little bit more and spend some time actually reflecting biblically on the theme of musical worship? That's reason number one. Reason number two is that you can't escape the fact that if you're going to preach the Bible, you just have to preach on worship because it's everywhere. <laughs> um, let me just read you a couple of verses. Psalm 95, verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Come, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 98, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Um, or, you know, here's the very last line of the entire book of Psalms. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So just, you know, I could give you any number of other ones, but there you go. There's just an example, a couple of examples of how this is a really important biblical theme, so we're going to focus on it. And over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to attend to questions like these. Uh, number one, for example, why do we worship? Um, or uh, this question, are there certain kinds of songs that we should or shouldn't use? Uh, am I supposed to do something with my hands? <laughs> why do some people do that? How, you know, is that something I, I should do? Uh, but tonight, I just want to start with a very, very basic question. And the question that we're going to look at tonight is this. What is worship? What is worship? Um, and to get into that, I want to have you um, either in your Bible or there's a handout here. Um, go to Psalm 66. Psalm 66. The book of Psalms is, is the perfect place for talking about worship because in Hebrew, the Hebrew name for the psalm book literally means praises. Um, in other words, each of the psalms is a song of worship to God. And what I'd like to do is begin by just reading Psalm 66 out loud. So this is Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing the praises of your name. Come and see what God has done. His awesome deeds for mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. 
they passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Come and hear, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God, who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. So this psalm is a really, really good text for talking about what worship is, because the entire psalm is one enormous call to worship. The first verse, look at the first verse. It just says, shout for joy to God. And the last verse says, praise God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. So this, this whole psalm, it's, just, it's one big summons to worship. And you would expect, therefore, to find in it some clues about how to worship, when to worship, you know, what, what is worship. And so this psalm is going to tell us three things tonight about what worship is. And, and here they are. It's going to tell us that worship is delighting in God for who he is and what he's done for us. Worship is delighting in God for who he is and what he's done for us. And I'm just going to look at each of those three parts of that statement one by one. And so the first thing tonight that this psalm is going to teach us about worship is that worship is delighting in God. So look at the first two verses. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. So these are the opening verses of this psalm. And in fact, basically the entirety of this psalm says that to look at God is to look at God and be filled with praise. Uh, you can get a bit of an idea of, of, of how exuberant this psalm is um, by just noticing that virtually every part of the human body here is engaged in, in reveling in God. So let me give you some examples. Verse 1, notice that he worships with his mouth. He's, he's shouting. Uh, in verse 5, he worships with his eyes. He says, come and see. In verse 16, he's worshiping with his ears. He says, come and hear. In verses 5 and 16, he's worshiping with his body. You know, come is not just, you know, a throwaway word. Come means move, get up, move your body from one place to another. And by the way, he actually even worships with his nose. Look at verse 15. He sacrifices animals and it creates a pleasing aroma. Uh, and by the way, that also means he's worshiping with his wallet because animals back then were a form of money. But then here's another detail to notice. The very first line again, look at the very first line. It says, shout for joy. Not just shout, but shout for joy. Now, it's worth dwelling on the little word joy for just a minute. Um, in Hebrew, the word technically there just means shout. Um, it's a word that very often does indicate a shout of joy or a shout of triumph. Not, not always. 
And so the question is, how do we know it's a joyful shout, you know, not like an angry shout or a, or a frightened shout? Well, if you look at the, the context, look at verses 5 and 6. Um, in these verses, what is the psalmist shouting about? He's shouting about the Exodus. Um, remember, this is, this, is, this is the Old Testament. These are the Israelites talking. So the Israelites were birthed through the Exodus. And he's shouting about the time when God takes the Red Sea, he turns it into dry ground, he delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. And so the thing he's shouting about here is he's shouting about rescue. He's not shouting with anger. He's not shouting with fear. He's shouting with joy and triumph. And so that's why we read here, shout for joy. Now, why, why does that little detail matter? I want to suggest to you that this, this matters because even more important than the fact that the psalmist is shouting is the reason why the psalmist is shouting. Um, it's one thing to shout. Uh, you know, if, you're, if you're shouting with joy, um, it means that you're shouting not because you have to, but because you want to. There's a big difference between, between those two things. And this makes all the difference. And this makes all the difference to how we think about musical worship. And someone who agrees with me on this, or maybe I agree with him. I think the better way to put it is that I agree with him. Um, one person who agrees is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. In 1958, C.S. Lewis published a little book called Reflections on the Psalms. And in that book, Lewis tells about how when he first came to the Psalms, he encountered a problem. Uh, Lewis said that every time he came across a passage in the Psalms that commanded people to praise God, it would upset him. You know, these were passages, for example, that would say things like ours do, shout to God or worship God or sing to God. And the reason it made him upset was because he thought it made God come across as petty. You know, how could it be that God demands that people praise him as though he's a pathetic dictator who needs people to stoke his ego? That's what Lewis thought. And it also upset him because he thought it made Christians come across as mercenary. You know, he mentions those places in the Psalms where the psalmist says, you know, Oh God, if only you'll save me from this horrible mess, well then I'll, I'll praise you all the time. And he thought, that sounds like a mercenary idea. Is that what worship is? Is worship just stoking God's ego? Is worship cutting God a deal? That was, that was his question. But then Lewis made a discovery. And here's how he puts it in this book. He says, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the heart of true worship, it, it's, it's not merely a bunch of worshipful words that are just idly spoken into the air. And it's not even just reducible to just songs or bowing down or sitting or kneeling or standing, all these things that we would associate with the word worship. That's a part of worship, but he's saying the heart of worship is delighting in God, shouting for joy. The, the, the true worship is enjoying God, reveling in God, delighting in God for who he is. So remember King David. 
Uh, remember how David is called by God a man after his own heart. But when you read the things that David wrote in the Psalms, a man after God's own heart, you see his heart. And you see the reason why he worships. Notice that David does not say in the Psalms, you know, I worship you to get your approval. And he doesn't say, I worship you just to get your blessing. David says, I worship you to get you. I worship you because I delight in you. I worship you because I love you. Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Uh, you know, some, some years ago, I, I, I remember watching a video. It was a video interview with the great British evangelical leader, John Stott. If you don't know that name, he's a, it's a good name to know. If you ever are looking for one of the most wonderful Christian books you can ever read, go read John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. Wonderful book. John Stott, in this video, shortly before he died, was asked this question. The question was, when do you feel most alive? And without hardly having to think about it, John Stott's answer was, I feel most alive in public worship. And at first I was pretty taken aback by his answer. You know, here's a guy who's one of the most respected Christians in the world and has nearly 90 years of living experience when he's giving this interview. And, and he says that the thing that makes him feel most alive is is worship, which many people, many Christians even, might say they find to be maybe strange or weird, boring, intolerable. And yet the more I've thought about his answer, the more it makes a lot of sense, because John Stott feels most alive in worship since what he's really doing is he's delighting in God. He's delighting in God for who he is. If you relate to God like he's just no more than your boss, if you relate to God simply as, like, for example, actually in other religions, like Muslims would relate to Allah, just as someone you have to please so you don't get zapped, you might praise that kind of God with your lips, but your heart will be far from him. What makes all the difference in the world is if God is your treasure. If you love being with God, if you love thinking about God, if you love talking without God, to talking about God, you're going to inevitably enjoy him. And that enjoyment is going to, as Lewis says, spontaneously overflow into praise. You're going to worship God and, and hardly maybe even notice that you're doing it because it feels so natural. You're caught up in enjoying him. And you're so caught up that it overflows into shouting and singing and, and praising. And it bubbles out of you and your whole being just comes to life. You're going to shout to God, not because it's out of fear, out of anger, but out of joy. You're going to worship God, not because you have to, but because you want to. And, and of course, by the way, if you know the way that the Bible uses words like fear, fear refers to a number of things, including reverence. And of course, as we'll talk about later in the series, reverence is a, an absolutely essential element to, to worship. But at bottom, but at bottom, there has to be delight. You have to know and love the God to whom you are singing. The first thing this psalm teaches us is that true worship is delighting in God, number one. But number two, it's delighting in God for who he is, for who he is. Um, you know, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, great. <laughs> uh, delighting in God sounds wonderful, but, you know, how do I do that? You know, what happens when I don't delight in God, when I don't feel like I love him or I don't feel close to him or whatever? And that's a really great question. Um, I don't know about you. I can't just tell my heart 
to feel certain things. I can't just, you know, look down at my chest and just yell at myself and say, you know, just delight in God. (laughs) My heart and your heart has to be wooed. It has to be captivated. And the question that this psalm is going to help us answer is how do you do that? How do you have a heart that is captivated by by Jesus? Look at verse 2. Uh, Verse 2, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious, say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you, they sing praise to you, they sing the praises of your name. Did you notice that there's a worship strategy here in this psalm? First, the psalmist says to worship God, that's verse 1, but then he immediately turns around and says, why to worship God? And starting in verse 2, he, he launches into a list of qualities that make God praiseworthy. So verse 2 says he's glorious. Verse 3, he's powerful. And then you come to verses 5 and 6. Come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. So, so you're finding out here, he's not just glorious and powerful. He's also a rescuer. He's a deliverer. In verse 7, he's a ruler. In verse 17, he's a helper. In verse 19, he's a listener. And in verse 20, he's a lover. So do you see what's going on here? The psalmist is delighting in God for who he is, on the basis of who God is. And as he's worshiping, he's filling his mind with as many different attributes about who God is as he can. And the result of all that is worship. Um, it's a little bit like an illustration I, I once heard. really helped me understand how, how worship works. Um, imagine there's someone who goes up into their attic one day, and they're, they're digging through a bunch of old, you know, family, family relics, not really quite sure what they're going to find, and they discover that there's locked away, in a, you know, some sort of chest or something. They, they find an old family heirloom, and it's this ring. And, and not quite sure how much it's worth. Looks like there's, you know, something of value And so she decides to, the person decides to take it to the jeweler, get it appraised. Well, the jeweler takes out his little magnifying glass thing, his jeweler's loop, and he looks at it. And as he's looking at the jewel, the ring, uh, his eyes begin to pop out of his skull because he realizes, oh my goodness, you know, the thing I'm holding here, this is a jeweler's holy grail. You know, the, the, the gem in this ring, it's one of a kind. It's perfectly made. It's perfectly cut. The knowledge of how to craft something like this has been lost from the face of the earth. And each time he rotates the gem, the light catches another facet of it, and his eyes pop out of his skull all over again. And his jaw hits the floor, his heart leaps out of his chest, because each facet is revealing how priceless the thing he is holding in his hands is. When you behold God in worship, it's a little bit like beholding that gem. True worship happens when we behold the multifaceted greatness of God. When you behold his glory, when you behold his beauty, when you behold his goodness and his love and his power and his mercy, it's as though the light is catching another facet of who God is. And that is what fills the human heart with delight. That's what's going to fill the human heart with worship. And there's a, there's a corollary to this. That means that, that worship is, is far more than just coming to church, coming to a group like this, 
and simply having a set of feelings, an emotional experience. Now, in the next couple of weeks, I'm actually going to speak a little bit more directly to this because there's a lot of questions about what, you know, what actually should be the role of emotion, um, not only in worship, but in the Christian life. But, but for now, let me just say that you can't simply have emotion alone. Worship ultimately must be, by definition, is a response to beholding who God is. Let me give you a biblical example of this. Um, this is an example from the Old Testament. Remember the, the Old Testament tabernacle. Um, the tabernacle, you may remember, it's a special tent that God gave to the Israelites for their worship. And it had many different components. You know, there was the altar, there was the basin, there was the incense altar, there was the lampstand. And if you study out each of those different elements, there's a, a, a symbolism to each one that's designed to teach the Israelites something about who God was as they would draw near to worship him. And I'll just give you one specific example here. Whenever the priest would draw near to the, the presence of God, he approached God through the outer chamber of the tabernacle called the holy place. And inside the holy place, there was a table that was always set with this special bread that was called the showbread. Now, this is kind of interesting if you, if you reflect on what this experience would have actually been like. You know, it means that whenever you came to the tabernacle to worship God, you would have walked right into a pre-made meal. <laughs> You know, think about this. Why would God want the Israelites to stumble into a dinner table as part of their act of worship? I think the reason is that if you were one of those worshipers, that table was a reminder of fellowship. Fellowship is what you do when you have a meal together. You know, you can't sit across the table from someone, eat food with them, and not be having fellowship. And it was a reminder to the Israelites that the God that they were coming to worship was a God who invites us to have intimate fellowship with him. And so if you saw that table as you're on your way to, to come toward where God is, you would have thought, wow, this is a God who invites me to draw near. This is a God who invites me to his table. This table would have been a visible, touchable symbol about a truth of who God is. It was doctrine with legs. <laughs> Every object in the tabernacle was like that. And as worshipers moved through it, it would have taught them something about who God is. It would have formed the basis for their worship. And, and even, even more, by the time you get to the New Testament, you begin to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. Jesus is the way we have fellowship with God. Jesus is the way we have access to God. Now today, we're not going to learn about God primarily by walking into a tent. But the place that we do find out about who God is, is in Scripture. Uh, do you know what you're doing when you are spending time in the Word of God? When you're reading it, when you're studying it, when you're delighting in it? You're beholding God. You're rotating the gym. You're reading His love letter to you. You're moving through the tabernacle. You're filling up your mind with truth about who God is. Do you see? You see why, why Scripture is so important in the life of a Jesus follower. Um, some of you may remember, this was a long time ago, but on January 15th, 2009, there was, there was just a, an absolutely unforgettable story in the news. The, the, all, the, you know, all the media took to call the miracle on the Hudson. And this was the incident where there was, there was a, a commercial airline pilot who made an emergency landing on the Hudson River, and not a single person on, the, on board the plane died. It's been called the most successful airplane ditching in aviation history. Pretty, pretty remarkable. Uh, the question, though, is how, how was the pilot able to do it? That's what all the media was asking in the aftermath. 
And so the, the pilot, a guy named Chesley Sullenberger, he was interviewed on a TV show. And on the TV shows, he's being asked, you know, how did you, how did you pull this off? He brought up his four decades of flying experience. And then he said this. For 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the balance was sufficient so I could make a very large withdrawal. <laughs> Practice makes perfect. <laughs> but you see, when you meditate on Scripture, when you meditate on who God is, you're making small, regular deposits in the bank of truth up here in your head so that when you come to a worship service on a Sunday or you come to Thrive on a Thursday, you can make a very large withdrawal toward worship in your heart. But if you don't meditate on who God is, if you don't fill up your life with Scripture, then your bank account is effectively empty. You know, you may show up to church and feel as though you're having the most epic, passionate, intimate worship session of your life. But if you don't know who God is, then you're not really worshiping anything or you're worshiping yourself. You know, you're just feeling emotional because of the music. That's why worship and the Word always go together. Worship is always a response to beholding who God is. So you see, so far we, we, we've seen that worship is delighting in God and delighting in God for who God is. Okay, so, the, you know, a couple parts of our definition. But, but let, me, let me just bring up a quick problem. And maybe you're thinking this as you're sitting here listening to this. The problem is, what happens if you're just not feeling it? Um, you know, when I studied uh, some, for, for graduate school, I was studying theology, and I, I studied theology um, at Oxford. It was a secular university, and there were a lot of people I met there who knew a lot about the Bible, but it wasn't um, in a way that, that resulted in worship. Um, and, and I remember someone once shared to me <laughs> that sometimes there can be such a thing as tadpole Christians, all head, no heart. And in fact, I just, I, I, I just remember this, this distinct memory of one time I was at a, this, this awful, snobby, snooty dinner party for a bunch of people studying theology. I felt extremely out of place, and I remember asking another graduate student, and I said, hey, you know, what's led you to study theology? He gets this funny look on his face. This is a PhD student, by the way, so he's paying probably good money to be here. He says, that's a really good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> So how do you keep from becoming a tadpole Christian? You know, how, how do you, what do you do if you, if you put in time meditating on God's word and, and worship just seems like a great big black box to you? You know, there's something that seems to be obstructing the path from the head to the heart. And I just want to say on this, that, that on the one hand, it's, it's important to say that sometimes worship is a discipline. Um, sometimes you do spend all kinds of time in scripture. Sometimes you do sing songs in church again and again and again because you want to be delighting in God. You want to be worshiping God. And, and, and maybe your heart doesn't always feel the way you want it to feel. And I just want to let you know that, that that's okay. <laughs> Don't beat yourself up. Delighting in God isn't always something that you feel. Your faith is not based on a feeling. It's based on a fact. It's based on the fact that Jesus died for you and rose again. And delighting in something means that you value it so much that you put it first no matter what. You know, if you're married or, you know, get married someday, and, you're, and you delight in your spouse, you're going to put their needs above yours, even if it's a Monday morning. Even if you've got to drop everything to help your spouse take the kids to the school or, or whatever. 
So even if you're not as madly in love with your spouse as you were the day you got married or on the first date, you know, you still serve your spouse. You still value them. You still show up in a way that shows that you are delighting in them. And sooner or later, your feelings will catch up. And that's why we're called to soak in Scripture, to, to meditate on God's Word, even if we're not feeling as though we're, you know, getting some emotional charge each time we do. And it's why we're called to worship, even when we don't necessarily feel it. Delighting can be a discipline that takes time to train. So, uh, just one more thing, one, one, one more part in this definition of what worship is. Um, we've said that worship is delighting in God for who he is, and now, point number three, and for what he's done for you. Worship is delighting in God for who he is and for what he's done for you. Look at uh, verses five and six again. Come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. All right, so, so far, the psalmist has been praising God for who he is. But now notice that he's starting to praise God for things that he's done. And as I already mentioned, in particular, the thing he's praising God here for is the event called the Exodus. Um, this is clearly being alluded to here when God talks about making a, you know, he talks about God making a, a dry path through the Red Sea. Um, he's talking about, obviously, the Israelites coming out of slavery. And in fact, in 12, uh, verses 10 through 12, there's kind of a similar line of thought. Uh, he says, for you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. Makes you think of the slavery in Egypt. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. Now, this could be referring to more than just the Exodus, but in any case, the idea basically is the same. God is being worshipped because he saved the psalmist from his distress. Um, to top it off, the theme of praising God's salvation continues all the way to the end of the psalm. Here's um, starting from verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. So let's ask, why? Why does this become such a, it really becomes the dominant theme of the praise in this psalm. What God has done for him. You know, is that, isn't that selfish? You know, shouldn't you not think about yourself when you're, when you're thinking about worship and, and about praising God? Well, we'll notice here a couple of key details. Notice that when the psalmist talks about, about the Exodus, he's not talking about it in the abstract. You know, he says God made a path of the dry, uh, through, through, through the Red Sea. His people went across on foot. There we rejoiced in him. He's effectively saying the reason he's worshiping God for his salvation is because I was there. <laughs> you know, I was there. It was as though my back had been the back beaten in slavery. It was as though my eyes saw that the Egyptians were ready to slaughter us. It was my jaw that fell open when he split the Red Sea in two. It was my life that he rescued when God brought us through to the other side. So the reason he's saying that he's filled with worship for God 
It's because God has saved him personally. Personally. And this theme is woven into nearly the entire psalm. Did you notice that when this psalm starts talking about God's salvation, there's a really significant progression. If you look at verses 5 through 9, the psalmist is talking about what our God has done, what God has done for him and for all his friends. And he refers to God here in the third person. He performs miracles. He makes a path through the sea. But then the pronouns change. Look at verse 10. Then he starts to refer to God in the second person. He's no longer talking about God. He's talking to God. You tested us. You refined us. You brought us to a place of abundance. And then in verse 13, he finally arrives at speaking to God in the first person. He says, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you, vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. So do you see that the deeper and deeper this psalm goes into worship, the psalmist talks less and less about God saving people in general and more and more about God saving him. And this is the secret that brings all of this together. Because the problem with head knowledge is that it's too abstract. You know, so what if you read in your Bible that God is powerful? So what if you read in your Bible that God is merciful? You know, so what if you even read in the Bible that God saves people, that he saves the Israelites from the Red Sea, that he brings them through fire and flood to a place of abundance? How on earth does that actually link up with your life so that it changes your heart so that you can genuinely worship? If you take the truth about who God is and what he's done, and it just is stored in your head, and it doesn't warm your heart, then that's something to seek God about. That's something to desire and ask for God for in prayer. You can't just have head knowledge stored in your head. You have to make it personal, and you have to make it personal through Jesus. And when you do that, when you personalize it, when you personalize it through Jesus— The result is going to be the things in your head racing down to your heart and exploding in delight and overflowing in worship. Now, now what do I mean by making it personal? What I mean is you've got to take what God has done and realize all that, that God did, he did for you. He did it for you. Now, now for us today, it's not like we look back at the Exodus and say that. We weren't there. We're not Israelites. But what we do have is we have the cross. The cross is the place where we can grasp the magnitude of what God has done for us. And for, not just for us, but for you. And you know, one of my favorite biblical ex- examples of this in the whole Bible is the example of Peter. Peter was a guy who knew about what it was to have the gospel become personal. On the eve of Jesus' death, Peter promises Jesus that he's never going to forsake him, even if everyone else does. But <laughs> it's Peter. So lo and behold, what does Peter do? He goes and forsakes Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. You know what, remember what Martin Luther said? Martin Luther said, sin boldly. Well, Peter, you know, well done. <laughs> so he, he, he absolutely blew it. You know, here's a guy who, who couldn't have gotten any closer to Jesus, and he absolutely blows it. And so that means that when Peter saw the cross, things got personal. The cross would have reminded Peter that the punishment 
that Jesus endured was what he deserved. He was the traitor. He was the coward. But at the same time, the cross also reminded Peter that God's love was radical. And not just radical and gentle, but radical for him. It reminded him that he was a traitor and that Jesus had died for that traitor. It would have reminded him that he was a coward, but Jesus died, not for any old coward, but for that coward. Jesus loved that coward. Jesus took that coward's place. When Peter was confronted with the cross, salvation didn't become an abstract theological truth. It didn't become something to debate about in the after hours of Thrive. Peter knew, Peter felt, Peter burned in his heart with the salvation that went all the way down to his bones because the cross had confronted him with the gravity of his sin, but also the unmeasurable depth of God's love for him. The cross says that every single human being is so stuck in sin that God himself had to come down and die for it. But it also says that God loves every single person that he gave up everything to buy us back. And the cross says that that is true for you. It is true for you. For your sake, God made himself nothing so that you could be something. The cross says that for you, God became hated so that you could be cherished. The cross says for you, God was rejected that you could be accepted. And the cross says that for you, God held nothing back so that he might hold you in his arms. That is the gospel. And looking at the cross is the place that it's going to become real for you, where it's going to become personal for you. You're no longer just going to think in your head, God loves every single person, and I guess he loves me. <laughs> but you're going to say in your heart, God loves me. <laughs> and if, you, if you're not amazed by that, then just keep thinking about it. <laughs> you know, just, just, just give it time. <laughs> this is the secret that binds it all together. If you're willing to do what Psalm 66 invites you to do, if you're really willing to look at the cross and accept its message that God's love is for you, then, oh my goodness, all those great theological truths that you debate about at Thrive until 12 o'clock at night, you know, all those things are going to race down into your heart and it's going to fill you with delight that will overflow with worship and praise. You're hardly going to know you're doing it. It's at least to worship, delighting in God for who he is and for what he's done for you. And this is what we're going to do right now. Um, if you came in partway through tonight and you're wondering why is Michael up here rather than the rest of the band. The reason is that, as I said at the beginning, we're actually for this little series, we're going to start with the message and then put it into practice by doing worship next. And so um, I'm going to invite the worship team um, to come. And um, Hannah's going to lead us tonight. She's picked some songs. And um, we're just going to get to practice what we've heard about. Um, and just as we do, can I just, can I just invite you to just, if you, if you just need to kind of take some time um, and just talk to God and say, you know, God, would you, would you, would you make the head to heart journey happen for me? Would you help me to really grab onto what this is, what you've done for me. Um, and just may that inform your worship. So let me pray, and then I'm going to invite the, you guys can go ahead and come up, and uh, we can move to worship. And then we'll do announcements and then small groups. Um, Father, just, I want to thank you for the chance to, 
be in this, this little mini-series talking about worship. Um, so many questions come up when we think about this topic. Um, sometimes it confronts us with feelings that maybe somehow we're, 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 we're not in touch with worship. We're inadequate. We don't quite get how to do it, and it feels like a black box to us. But Lord, would you just, would you use um, just this, this night and the next couple of weeks um, just to help us to um, just be stirred with love for you that overflows into praise. And help us do that now as we um, get to move into a time of musical worship. In Jesus' name, amen.